Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Elissa Branch, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today's episode of Houses in Motion features an interview with Michael Normand from the LA-based real estate brokerage Normand & Associates. Michael joins us to discuss some of the recent changes to the LA real estate landscape, including how reality TV shows have impacted the consumer experience and whether or not climate change will deter prospective buyers. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Want to give your customers the streamlined mortgage experience they expect? Fannie Mae's digital mortgage solutions are fast, efficient, contactless, and they save paper. Our digital mortgage solutions provide efficiency for you, convenience for your customers, and deliver a great experience at every stage of the mortgage cycle. Own the mortgage experience with Fannie Mae's innovative solutions. Visit FannieMae.com slash go digital. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Houses in Motion, part of the Housing Wire Daily podcast stream. I'm Matthew Blake, real estate reporter at Housing Wire. Houses in Motion is all things residential real estate, and that includes the rarefied air of Beverly Hills. For this episode, I spoke with Michael Normand, who is the second generation broker of Normand and Associates, one of the most established brokerages in the Beverly Hills area. We talked about the example this sunny enclave of the rich sets and doesn't set for the rest of residential real estate. Specifically, we looked at how reality TV has shaped real estate's perception and reality. If you have thoughts, questions, please email me at mblake at housingwire.com. That's M-B-L-A-K-E at housingwire.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Houses in Motion. I am here today with Michael Normand. He is the broker of Normand and Associates, which is a longtime important brokerage in Beverly Hills. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So first off, why don't you just tell our audience, which is a national audience, What is Nermond and Associates? What should they know about you and how you got into real estate? So Nermond and Associates uh, started in 1976. Uh, My dad started it with a small office in Beverly Hills, probably the size of a a modern walk-in closet. Uh, Now we have three offices. So we have one in Beverly Hills, one in Brentwood, one in Hollywood. We're about 175 agents. Uh, year to date in 2021, we've done about a billion dollars in business and, um, it's a family business. I'm second generation and I got started kind of at the dinner table. So my parents would talk real estate when we were having dinner and my brother and sister thought it was very boring. And they almost had like a chant that went something like this, real estate, real estate, real estate. Why does it always have to be about real estate? And for me, I wanted to know, like, where was the property? How is the deal going to go down? Um, 
I wanted to know all the, the intricacies of making the deal. So I, I took an interest pretty early on. And then in the 90s, uh, so I was born in very early 80s, but in the 90s, I had a bar mitzvah. So people that aren't familiar, a bar mitzvah in the Jewish religion, you have a ceremony at, at, at temple, you say some prayers in Hebrew. It's when you turn 13, it's supposed to mark the time period when you become a man, which to me is funny because I looked like I was not a day older than 10 when I turned 13. I was short and skinny and scrawny. I looked nothing like, <laughs> nothing like a young man. So you have a, usually there's a blowout party and there's a theme that you have. So the theme for my party was Monopoly. So one of the um, tables was Park Place. Uh, another table was Boardwalk. And that you can kind of see the, the early signs. And then, you know, by the time I was graduating from high school, I was dating a girl and her dad was in real estate. And I remember him telling me like, well, your, your parents have this company that does well and is, is well known. You need to do something to make money before you can invest in real estate. So, you know, why don't you go in and get your license and broker deals? So I got my license uh, within a matter of months after I finished high school. So my first year of college, I had my real estate license. And then in the summers, I would come to the office and do administrative jobs. And by the time I had graduated from USC, I'd already closed uh, a couple sales. So you've, you've been a real, you've had a lifelong passion for real estate. How, how have you seen real estate change in your time since being at the dinner table with your father? Like, what would you say is maybe the biggest change that, that you've seen over a generation? So the biggest change, so when I started, you have to think I was doing the marketing job. And at that point, there was only one person handling the marketing job. So that summer I was there, I, I ran the marketing job. The LA Times sent a runner to the office to pick up Polaroid pictures or, or, or printed pictures, I should say, because they weren't Polaroid, but printed pictures like you would get at like Rite Aid or, you know, a CVS. You know, they had the, the cameras, the, the print section where you went and you would drop off uh, the, the, the film and they would print it. So imagine somebody comes, he picks up those pictures to take them back to scan them. So at that point in time, we weren't even, you know, taking pictures and, and digitally uploading them we were giving them to the LA Times to scan. So the technology part of it changed a lot. Uh, back then, there was a software called System 4, which you had to be in the office and go onto it to see what was available for sale. The public didn't have you know, the internet to see everything online. Uh, they looked at the newspaper to see what was available. They had to call the agent to sort of see what they knew about so the, the flow of information has changed tremendously. Um, our office is pretty much paperless. So all the files, uh, we have a, a transaction management software. So if you wanted to get a file for a deal, you know, you send a link. There's digital signature. Everybody is using DocuSign. That seems to be the, the standard for getting things signed. So yeah, it's just changed a lot. Um, the consumer is much more sophisticated. So before, you know, the real estate agent kind of had all the information and now you kind of have the opposite problem, which is there's too much information. So now instead of the, holding the information close to your chest, 
everybody has the information. Your job is more to sort through it and to explain what's important and why. Yeah, that's really interesting. The image of the LA Times coming over to your office, that's a really striking one. I've looked on microfilm and the newspapers.com of, you know, old LA Times from the 90s, and there are real estate listings there. Was that something that consumers were using much? Like if I were trying to buy a home in LA in the 1990s, was I going to the Times or the LA Daily News or the LA Weekly, or was I mostly relying on the agent? How, how did consumers sort of, since there obviously was Zillow wasn't around, how did consumers kind of get information back then? Exactly the way you described it. They called a real estate agent. The real estate agent told them what was available yeah. and they looked at the paper. Um, very, very different. Now, people have access you know, there's obviously some stuff that sells off market, but the vast majority sells on market. Maybe as you get to a higher price point, uh, a larger percentage sells off market. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's different. You don't need a real estate agent to see 90% of the inventory, maybe 95% of the inventory, depending on what price point you're in. And I guess to then ask you a question that I ask, maybe all real estate agents is if you don't need the real estate agent for that, what do you need the real estate agent for at this point? So I would view it that, you know, before the part, a big part of the real estate agent's job was to find the property. Now to me, a big part of the agent's job is to interpret the information, explain the nuances, you know, which streets are better. Oh, this property's floor plan is going to be difficult to sell. Uh, this is a, a a view location, so it'll go for a premium. To explain the nuances that you know you can't see on Zillow, that you're not going to see uh, on a on a Redfin estimate, and then the reason why the disruptors haven't been able to commoditize it, the business is because every deal is different. There's something different in every deal. No matter how many times uh, I close a deal, there's something. There's some surprise. There's something that that is different than the last deal I did. So I think a big part of it is shepherding the client through it, dealing with the inspections, negotiating the price, negotiating the repairs when you get the inspections. And a very, very overlooked part of it is the your agent's relationship with other agents. Right now, uh, I'm writing a, an insider ad that kind of talks about the importance of your agent's relationship. And sometimes you'll hear the consumer say, oh, I hired John Smith because he can get it done. I don't necessarily like him. I don't trust him, but I hired him because I know he'll, he'll do it and that's what it's all about. And the point of the article that I'm writing is that you're in an environment with multiple offers. So the listing agent can give some information, no information. Look, they have a fiduciary duty. But the agents that they like and that they have a relationship with are more likely to get valuable information that could make the difference of getting a deal or not. Um, so what I always say is that, you know, this idea that it doesn't matter if your agent's trustworthy, it doesn't matter. All that matters is they get it done is that actually is not the truth. The truth is that if you have an agent that other people don't like working with and you're in a multiple you're probably going to have to pay more <laughs> and have better terms because otherwise, if it's close, 
they're going to push for the agent that is easier to work with. And sometimes agents have a reputation for having better or worse clients. You know, there's certain agents that you know uh, roll with very, very uh, prestigious, wealthy clients um, that they're no, they're no nonsense. And there are other agents that you know, you know, sometimes they're the agent, the client sometimes is a little bit of a reflection of that. Uh, the client will try anything, do anything, say anything. They're shameless. So, so yeah, getting back to your question, I think it's much more of an advisor role on which property to pick, why, how much it should go for, dealing with the process, and also trying to keep everybody calm and rational. And, you know, the client doesn't necessarily need to feel every single bump. Uh, there are certain bumps that they need to be aware of, and there are other things that you know can kind of be worked out behind the scenes. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, I think I'm increasingly seeing the agent as sort of an advisor, almost a therapist or a guide to the client. So what is unique about Beverly Hills? What should people, besides the fact that properties are a lot more expensive there than they are in most other parts of the country, what should someone in, say, Des Moines, Iowa, know about the Beverly Hills housing market or what might be something that surprises them about the Beverly Hills housing market? So the stuff that they probably are aware of is the competition's fierce, right? Bigger dollar amounts. There's more competition. And going back to what you said uh, when I got started, if you were a lawyer when I got started and you sold real estate, I looked at you cross-eyed. Like, why would you sell real estate if you're a lawyer? Now, if you're a lawyer and you sell real estate, I look at you like, oh, like you're, you're smart. You, you figured out that this is a more interesting and potentially obviously depends on how successful of an agent and what type of law you're in, but a, a lucrative business. You know, the, if you're a top agent versus a run-of-the-mill lawyer, you're making a lot more money as a, as a top real estate agent. So um, so I don't think the competition part is going to surprise anybody. The consumer is very knowledgeable. I think sometimes in maybe middle America or in other parts of the U.S., the real estate agent may be more sophisticated than the clientele. You know, uh, I think that in, in Beverly Hills, it's very likely that the consumer may be more sophisticated than the real estate agent. It doesn't mean that they know more about real estate. It's just that, you know, more educated, wealthier, um, maybe they're in multiple businesses, uh, you know, graduate degrees, that kind of thing. Um, also, the idea that, that uh, you need exceptional service, uh, the consumer demands it in Beverly Hills. And the part that maybe people wouldn't know is this is sort of ground zero for renegotiating. So think of it like this. There's sort of two negotiations especially in Beverly Hills. So the first negotiation is to get into escrow. The second negotiation, which is very aggressive in Beverly Hills, is over the inspections. And it sometimes can almost feel like it's like a personal injury settlement more than a real estate deal, where it's like, you know, there's $50,000 or $100,000 of repair and the person asks for $300,000. And they can be very contentious. And it's a very hard thing to sort of know how much to negotiate versus when to sort of shove the person out and then go to the next buyer. I wanted to get back to one thing 
that you mentioned in the home buying process regarding the inspections. I thought that was really interesting because I speak with real estate agents across the country and they're always talking about, well, what if there's something wrong with the roof or there's something wrong with the plumbing when they're closing a home? What might be a $200,000 home in Shreveport, Louisiana or Pennsylvania or somewhere. And even for them, it's a concern to find the right independent contractor to be able to finish that deal. So what is it like in Beverly Hills when we're talking about renovations that might run, like you said, $150,000, Is there kind of like this exclusive network of roofers or plumbers that agents work with? What is that like to ensure that you have the right inspections and the right repairs done at the right moment to close a deal? So that's a really good question. So when I started in the business, generally people did one inspection. They did a general inspection. Now, when you buy a property, so let's assume it's a single family, so a house, on average, I do a termite inspection, general, sewer line, chimney fireplace, foundation, roof, and mold. So now it went from one inspection to let's call it approximately eight inspections. So if I took eight people and I had them inspect a person's body, I took eight doctors, one generalist and seven specialists, and I had them inspect the human body with a microscope, you're going to have things that are wrong with you. Nobody's perfect and no house is perfect. So you start with all those inspections and there's, you know, the reputable agents usually use similar people. Everybody has a different person, but I'm primarily using the same, you know, few general inspectors. And then, so I know the people, I trust the people. It's the same people that are coming and doing the inspections, whether I'm buying a house or a client's buying a house. So then you get all these reports and then you have this process of, you have to obviously organize the reports. You have to go through it. And you also have to have a conversation with a client to explain what is an upgrade versus what is a repair. So someone will say, okay, give me an example. All right. If the roof is getting near the end of its useful life and it needs a tune-up, to me, that would be a repair. If the roof is getting near the end of its useful life and you say you want a brand new roof and it's not a brand new house, that's an upgrade. So I have to explain that to the client. The other thing is there's a a way to package your request to make it feel better. So, you know, someone would say, well, you know, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll usually look at what the estimates are and you can do, and most of the time it's a combination. It's, you know, you ask for them to fix some stuff. You ask them to give you a credit for some stuff. So what I usually do is I look at all of the numbers and let's say that it's $75,000. $75,000 on a place for, let's say, a million five sounds like a lot of money. You know, it's 5% of the price. Um, So what I may do is I may get that number to like $35,000 and then ask them to fix a couple things so it looks a little bit better, Uh, especially if like maybe something is like 10,000 of it is like, to have the place tented for termites. 
that used to be something that was standard procedure that the seller did. It's not anymore. Now it's negotiated with everything else. But you have to package it and explain it. And if you're a good agent, you make it easy for the other agent to explain it to their client, right? Because I know how I want it to be explained when I talk to the to the listing agent. But I don't know how the listing agent is going to present it to their client. Well, if I make it so that basically all they have to do is regurgitate and forward what I emailed to them, I know that what I want to be conveyed is going to be is going to be said in that conversation. So there's an art to it. And, you know, sometimes if you ask for too much, you offend the seller and they either give you very little or they don't want to deal with you. So I, I usually advise clients to we're going to negotiate aggressively, but it's going to be on fact, backed up with uh, um, estimates and going to be very easy to follow. And we're not going to we're not going to nickel and dime them and put a bunch of like annoying things like, oh, there's a. Uh, um, a rubber stopper that's missing in the bathtub, or there's a uh, a little plate cover that needs to be there. Focus on big ticket items, very simple, easy to follow documentation, package it really nicely. And the result will be good. You do a sloppy job and you ask for too much money. It's not going to be well-received. Yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to go back to one thing about the distinctiveness of Beverly Hills. One thing I think that is so distinctive about Beverly Hills is that there are so many shows about real estate in and around Beverly Hills. There's Million Dollar Listing, Selling Sunset. How did these shows affect the real estate market itself in Beverly Hills? And what do they show that might be accurate or inaccurate? I'm a glass half full kind of a guy. Um, I think most successful agents are optimistic. I think you have to be wired that way. Nobody wants to work with a real estate that's a, that's a Debbie Downer or, or, or bad luck. Um, so I think these shows made selling real estate really glamorous, right? When I graduated from college and you came back from, let's say, going to USC or UCLA and you told your parents in you know early 2000s, hey, I want to get into residential real estate. They looked at you like they just wasted all of their money sending you to college. Right. It was very, very different. I mean, it was almost like, you know, they, they held their nose when they listened to their kid. Like They were cringing. Now, uh, you know, you graduate from a, a good college and you come home and you say to your parents, you know, I, I want to get into residential real estate. And they think it's fabulous. They're thrilled. It, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen, how dramatically it has shifted. Um. I think part of that is due to reality TV. And the other thing I think that these shows capture, I think they capture the drama, right? I mean, everybody wants to, I mean, Bravo to me, they might as well call the network drama rather than Bravo because it's just, um, they capture the drama, they capture the stress. They do a good job of showing the competition. They show, you know, the hard conversations with the sellers uh, they show that, you know, they don't always get the deal or they work really hard, but it's also entertainment. So they don't show how the negotiations actually go down. The idea that you get an offer and you meet with the seller in person and then you step outside and you negotiate a deal in 10 minutes in right. one or two phone calls is so inaccurate. It's not even funny. I mean, I have deals where I'm negotiating for over a week. I had one deal I was negotiating for three years. 
Now it was a complex swap deal and it didn't happen, which is even the worst part. Um, but they don't, the, the negotiations are not that fast or swift. Um, and the other thing is they're showing agents that are successful. Now, some of those agents became far more successful because of the shows, right? Mm-hmm. So I looked at celebrities as you know actors in movies and TV shows, and then you kind of shifted and you had celebrities as people on reality TV. And now you fast forward and you have celebrities that are TikTok or Instagram or YouTube stars. So, I mean, it's even gone further, but a lot of these agents have built their businesses because their phone is ringing off the hook of people who want to work with famous real estate agents and they want to tell their friends, Hey, this one is my real estate agent. It's like, like gossipy bragging in a way. I guess one, just one follow-up I'd have on all of that is, do you ever feel as a broker in Beverly Hills that what the reality shows are portraying, what some of the lavish events that you just were describing are portraying ever puts like pressure on you to sort of glamorize yourself or glamorize, you know, the agents that you help guide at Normand and Associates? Are there ever any expectations for you from the client that you kind of have to put on a show as like a Beverly Hills agent, a Hollywood type agent? Yes. I think that certain clients want to be sold. They want the the full presentation. They want the array of different things to promote the property. And, you know, thinking of the house that uh, Bruce Mikowski sold for like 94 million. Right, right. It came on the market for 250. I mean, 250 to 94, that's, that's, I'm not a PhD in math, but that's a lot less than half. You know, uh, if it was 200 million, it would, be not even 50%. So, so yes, I mean, sometimes you have to conform to their expectations to compete. Sometimes you're able to explain why you do things differently and why it's to their benefit. You know, during COVID, obviously these large spectacles, you know, there was a a pause on that, but yeah, I mean, we've had agents, uh, who've done things. Uh, one of them did, a. uh, had a, a penthouse condo. Uh, Rochelle Mays at my company had a, a penthouse condo in Santa Monica mm-hmm. and they had this huge event and they broke a, you know, a, a Guinness uh, a record for, I think, the number of pinwheels. And it was a great event and it was quite successful. It was actually one of the times where, uh, one, that was part of the pitch to get the listing and two, it was effective. In my view, most of the time, uh, the way I see it is that it's usually to to appease the client. That was an example of where it, it did work. But, you know, you go and you hear of like, they bring in some chefs for a 20 agent exclusive dinner, or you hear another one that, you know, some guy flew in town from Italy and they brought the foremost chef to make the best Italian cuisine. If I'm looking at a house, either I like the house or I don't, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, getting a nice free meal doesn't hurt, but that to me isn't what sells the house. So you have sort of the two schools of thought is you have the agents that are more over the top and they run with it and that works for them. And you have the other agents that are also uh, very successful and they sort of like 
preach that that's all a spectacle and that they're selling every bit as much houses and they do things that they find to be more effective without the show. Um, my, my personal clientele tends to be a little bit more understated and business-minded. So most of the people that I represent don't want, uh, don't want the whole show. They don't want a crazy sales pitch. They don't want a, a larger-than-life uh, agent who's sort of taking a lot of the spotlight. One question that I think agents out there might have, just very mechanically speaking, if you're selling a home in Beverly Hills and the Palisades and Brentwood that's going for multi-million dollars, does that mean that your percentage cut of the commission as an agent or broker might be less than it is for the medium home sale in the US? So I would say in Beverly Hills tends to be the most aggressive. When you go and you pitch a listing in Beverly Hills, it's more common for them to ask for uh, a lower rate. Some agents say yes. Some agents hold firm and are still successful at getting listings. Um, the going rate or most common rate mm-hmm. in Los Angeles is 5%. Okay. Two and a half to the listing agent, two and a half to the buyer's agent. As you get higher in price point, there gets more pressure. And really the pressure on the fees start in the 10 million range. So some people will say once you're over 10 million, sometimes it's 4% total. Sometimes it's four and a half. Sometimes it's 5%. And then once you get 20 million plus, I would say most of the time it's more like 4%. And then once you get to like some astronomical number, like $80 million, uh, I'm I'm sure the the listing agent is taking less than that most of the time, less than 2%. But usually the buyer's agent is getting 2%. Interesting. And another question that I think folks are really curious about is privacy. I kind of assume right now that any information anybody ever wants to look up about me is probably available somewhere online. There's this kind of 21st century expectation that we've compromised our privacy in some way. But I think maybe in the realm that you deal in, maybe it's a little different where maybe you're working with people that might be public figures, people that might still have a real expectation of privacy. So how does that play out and how do you protect the privacy of clients who want their privacy protected? So there are confidentiality agreements that are signed all the time. But once you deal with an A-list actor or celebrity, there's it doesn't matter. The press finds out. Yeah. You know, you go, I did a deal and a week passed and I thought, oh, great. It somehow didn't get in the paper. The next day it was on every single internet website <laughs> possible. I mean, it was like an explosion. Um, so usually you tell the client that in advance, like, look, I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not going to promote it, but just be prepared. Sometimes they'll want to get in front of it. So they know that it's going to come out. You know, Jay-Z buys a house. Everyone's going to know about it. No matter who represents them, what agreements are signed, they will find out. They they have their ways. But what Jay-Z may want to do is pick a publication and say, and make a statement. And that way, you know, there's a little bit of negotiating with the like, here, I'm going to bring you the story, but certain things I don't want said in that story. Right. 
And I think that there's a, like a friendly negotiation, but yeah, I mean, most of the time people don't get in front of it and it just gets blasted all over. The client gets upset. The business manager gets upset. The lawyers get upset. It's like, look, when Madonna buys a house, the whole world finds out in a matter of days, nothing I can do. So there's really no, I mean, a celebrity can really have no expectation of privacy ultimately. I like what Shaq said about Kyrie Irving. And uh, he had said that he didn't want to get the, you know, it was his, his decision should be private about the vaccination. And Shaq said, when you take $200 million, you lose the right to your privacy. Yeah. And I think that that was well said. You know, you take $200 million and it doesn't matter if you're in favor of a vaccination or you're not in favor of vaccination. I'm not taking a position on that. Uh, um, you know, our, uh, our staff is all, is all vaccinated, but I think the idea that, um, that when you become a celebrity, when you become a public figure, when you do that, your privacy is gone, yeah. whether you like it or not. So when you choose to be a professional basketball player, or you choose to be a TikTok star, your, your personal life is out in the open. You're in a, you know, you're in a glass house. One big final topic, I did want to touch on global warming and specifically wildfires. They were raging in Malibu at the end of 2018 and have visited other parts of LA that your brokerage does deals in, including the Pacific Palisades. How are these environmental threats affecting what is otherwise one of the most desirable markets in the world? So, okay, you have the global warming, right? And all the beachfront properties are going to be submerged and that's the end of the beach. The beach houses are have never sold faster and for a higher dollar amount in the city of LA. Yeah. Uh, I guess technically it's the city of Malibu, but you get my point. They're going like hotcakes. So I don't think that that's affected beachfront properties. And I think there's a good chance that rich people will figure out a way if they can make islands in Dubai with sand machines, they can figure out a way to bring sand and rocks and boulders and prolong it. And you know what, maybe at some point those houses will be submerged, but I'm sure by that point, we're all going to be six feet underground anyway, so it won't matter. Um, So it hasn't stopped that. I I think the fires were an issue for a while because getting insurance and the cost of insurance went through the roof. So you saw some discounting on prices to sort of make it more attractive for buyers to buy those houses. Um, But as other people have said, the good thing about LA is people have a short-term memory. And the bad thing about LA is that people have short-term memory. So yeah, uh, Malibu with the fires and stuff, Malibu was uh, got hammered. And now Malibu, particularly beachfront, is the hottest you know, uh, property in, in town. My parents are, are closing escrow on a, on a house that's beachfront. And they had the conversation about, is it smart? Is it not? Is the house going to be underground? All that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, houses in the hills, you know, off of Mandeville Canyon are selling. There was um, uh, Scooter Braun just bought a house off of Mandeville for like whatever the number was, let's just call it 70 million. I mean, not that at that number, it really matters if my number is accurate or not. And, you know, the Palisades market has been great. So it's like it never happened. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, 
So do the clients have conversations with agents about it even, or, or not really like, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, really good point you're making. So before during the due diligence period, right? So you make a deal, you have a contingency period. And once your contingency period is up, your deposit is in jeopardy. So now during the contingency period, talking to get insurance quotes is part of that process. It was always supposed to be part of the process, but it was not really something that agents talk to their clients. You just figured you'd get insurance. Okay, it'd be 500 bucks more or 1,000 or 2,000 more. But when those fires happened, you know, five or $6,000 insurance, some places were like 15, 20, 30 grand. They went crazy. So yes, it has become part of the due diligence period when you go into escrow now. And in the past, it was not much of a conversation. Michael Norman, this has been a very good conversation. Um, I know we had to sort of hop around, especially at the end. So before we go, I wanted to give you the floor. Is there anything you wanted to emphasize, wanted to point out to folks listening? Yeah. So I think for people that are thinking about getting into real estate, sometimes you have the idea that you just started a company and then, you know, you, you get trained at that company and then, you know, you switch and all that. But um, I think that a good company will have a good training program. So I'll give you an example. Um, Jill Epstein, one of our agents who started with my dad when she was 19 and has been with us a long time is a good example of somebody that started with us and has been with us, you know, a very long time uh, without me getting into the number of years, but uh, several uh, longer than most companies in LA are in business. Um, So I think that, you know, you want to go to a a company with a good reputation that has an excellent training program. So getting started training program is huge and you want to find a really good mentor. Sometimes you'll find new agents that get caught up on, you know, who's offering the highest commission split and they don't want to pay a mentor because then they're giving away a piece of the deal. And the way I explain it to them is this, when you're getting started, the most valuable thing is knowledge and giving yourself the best chance to be successful and having a great mentor who can explain, explain it to you teach it to you, help you be more successful, help you get there much faster is worth it. Um, And the biggest variable is the number of deals you close, regardless of how big of an agent you are. The number one variable for how much money you make is the number of deals you close. Anyone that has questions, feel free to uh, look me up at www.norman.com. You can email me at m normand at normand.com and please uh follow us uh on uh, instagram and facebook it's normand re and if you'd like to get our weekly newsletter if you email me i'll add you to our list okay great with that plug do you do you have a tiktok as well or? our company doesn't have a tiktok but we do have agents that are doing it okay and if you would have told me uh 10 years that there would be someone at our company who's primary job is to handle our social media account. I would have laughed hysterically, uh, but I'm not laughing anymore because that's been the case for the past five years. No one is laughing at social media right now. All right. Great. Uh, Michael Norman, Norman and Associates, Beverly Hills. Thank you so much for your time. Very enjoyable conversation. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. 
Looking for more insight into what will happen in 2022? Or maybe you need more information on what in the world is happening with the federal regulators. Or you could just be looking for information on how to stay competitive as the industry shifts to a purchase-focused market. Our HW Plus Premium Membership comes with all of this insight and more. With your HW Plus Membership, you'll get at least five HW Plus articles a week that dive deeper into the daily news to help you confidently make business decisions. To join, go to housingwarrant.com forward slash membership. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.